happened the other night. Uh, Buddha opens the Satipatthana discourse with really an amazingly bold and unambiguous statement. He said, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, the highest peace, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That's really a very direct statement that this path of developing and establishing the four foundations of mindfulness is the direct path to liberation. But there's an obvious question which can arise, and that is, how exactly does the practice of mindfulness, feeling the body, feeling a breath, hearing a sound, how exactly does this practice of mindfulness lead to liberation? What's, what's the connection? And I think this question, how mindfulness leads to liberation, how exactly it works, is particularly relevant given the widespread of mindfulness teachings, you know, in this culture now. So how is it that mindfulness has the potential to awaken within us that freedom of suffering, freedom from greed, freedom from hatred, freedom from fear, freedom from ignorance and delusion. So in order to understand how to actualize this potential, it's important to frame the practice of mindfulness not as an end in itself, but it's a practice of awareness or mindfulness in the service of wisdom. And as many of you may know, Saira Utejaniya speaks of this and he even named one of his little booklets, Awareness is Not Enough. So it's necessary, awareness or mindfulness. That's the doorway, but it has to be in the service of something. And it's in the service of wisdom. So one of the simplest and most accessible and deeply transformative avenues for the development of wisdom, which is another word for the investigation factor of mind. You know, it's the second of the factors of enlightenment. It's this factor of investigation, of discerning what's what. The most accessible or a very accessible avenue for the development of this wisdom is through an increasingly refined understanding and perception and experience of impermanence. The story of one of Suzuki Roshi's students. Roshi was uh, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center and you know one of his Uh, great book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, was a seminal Dharma book in this country as uh, the Dharma was spreading here in the 60s and 70s. 
So one of his students said to him, I've been listening to your lectures for years and I still don't understand. So I hope in 15 years that's not a comment that <laughs> is reflected back, but it might be. So the students, I've been listening to your lectures for years, I still don't understand. Can you please express Buddhism in a nutshell? And Suzuki Roshi replied, everything changes. So it's that simple. But the implications of that statement are enormous. Even though it's a very simple statement and a very obvious statement, the implications of what it means for our lives is tremendously far-reaching. And it's interesting, we all know that things change. So this is not an esoteric truth. Right? This is not some hidden mystery. We could go out to anybody walking I was going to say walking on the streets of Barry, but we're the ones who are walking on the streets of Barry. <laughs> you don't see too many others. <laughs> Go up to anybody walking on the streets of New York you know, and just ask them, you know, do things change? And everybody will say yes, because it's something we know, we know conceptually, we know intellectually. So it's not mysterious, but somehow we are not living in the awareness of this truth. We need to go from this conceptual level or this cognitive understanding, oh yes, everything changes, and kind of just treat it as some ordinary fact of life. What we need to do in our practice is to go from that level to the, to the level of a direct, immediate, might say face-to-face lived experience of the truth of change. And when we do that, when we can actually drop into that level of clear seeing, over time, our hearts and our minds relax. We learn to let go. We let go of many kinds of distress and many kinds of suffering. We can see this so clearly with our changing bodies. If we're attached to our bodies staying the same way, staying a certain way, then when they change, whether they change due to accident, due to illness, due to simply getting older, if we're attached to them staying a certain way, when they change, as they inevitably will, then we suffer. It's so obvious that the attachment and the clinging becomes a source of suffering for us. It's quite different and often difficult to see that these changes are not a mistake. You know, it's not that we've done something wrong and the body changes. It's just nature, it's, it's the way things are, it's the Dharma. You know, but I've noticed in myself, and I think it's not an uncommon experience, 
when we're going along and everything is feeling fine, you know, we're feeling good and our minds are basically at ease and our bodies feel reasonably comfortable and then something happens, something changes. You know, and there's some pain or there's some illness or there's whatever. And very often that first attitude in the mind, oh, what happened? If only I had kept it a little more together, this wouldn't have happened. You know, as, as if somehow we're responsible for this truth of change. So we need to begin to see the very uh, profound implications of understanding this truth in terms of how we relate to life. How are we, how are we relating to the truth, to the fact that things are changing all the time? When we repeatedly are perceiving very directly, again, this is not a conceptual understanding, this is a direct seeing of the changing nature, what happens? It begins to decondition the habit patterns of clinging and attachment in the mind. We no longer hold on so much. Now what's particularly strange and this may be unique to us as a species, that for some strange reason, we are in the habit of holding on even to states of suffering. You know, and when we watch the mind justifying and feeding you know, feelings of anger or envy or pride or jealousy or the whole, you know, range of afflictive emotions. Mind states that are suffering, we're suffering in them. And yet how often do we justify them to ourselves? Oh yes, I should be feeling this. It's like, it's like holding on to a hot burning coal. You know, who is it that's suffering? No matter what the external situation was, when we're caught up in these afflictive emotions, we're the one who is suffering. Why do we hold on to it? There are so many examples of this, but I remember one time, it was just very vivid. Uh, It's vivid in my memory. I was doing a self-retreat at the Forest Refuge. And just before the retreat, something happened. There was a little disturbing event. And, and just the next day I was going on, on retreat. And during quite a few weeks of the retreat, I would just watch my mind go back again and again to this event and be irritated, annoyed, and angry. And then I would see it and then the mind would drop back into a place of peace. And then sometime later, mind would again go and start reliving the whole thing and back to a state of peace. And I was just watching this. And after a while, <laughs> it's just a, I was sort of remarking about myself, Joseph, suffering, peace. Oh, <laughs> <Well>, let's suffer. <laughs> it's, 
it's <laughs> it just doesn't make sense and yet it's just these habit patterns of the mind and this is what we're trying to begin to decondition to see this is not necessary we actually can begin at least to practice having a choice You know, what's so amazing about the seductive power of the world is that when we look back at all our past experience, it's so clear, we, we can see so clearly the ephemeral, dreamlike nature of it all. You know, the experiences you had a year ago or a month ago or a week ago, or this morning. Where are they now? You know, things that we might have been so involved in and caught up in, and they're just like a distant memory. So when we look back, I think we all have that experience. It's not, it's not some, some high meditative attainment to understand this. Now, in looking back, we can see this dreamlike nature of our past experience. And yet, when we look ahead, somehow we're seduced again and again. It's like we're living our lives waiting for the next hit of experience. You know, for most of us, this is our lives. We're just leaning forward in anticipation you know, of the next project, the next vacation, the next meal, the next relationship, the next this, the next whatever. And on, on retreat, how often do we go through the day kind of leaning forward into the next sitting or anticipating the next sitting or the next walking or the next meal or even, even a more subtle level, the sitting leaning forward in anticipation of the next breath or the next step. I'm taking the in-breath in order to breathe out. I'm lifting the foot in order to move forward. And so we live our lives in this anticipation that the next something will finally bring fulfillment or completion. But of course it never does because like all the past experiences that we've had, they're all impermanent, they're all passing. And what we're experiencing now and everything we're anticipating will also soon be past. The great paradox of the spiritual life is that as objects of wanting, as objects of desire, all of these changing experiences, all these changing life experiences, as objects of desire, always leave us unfulfilled. Why? Because they don't last. And yet, as objects of mindfulness, the very same experiences, when we start relating to them in a different way, not as objects of desire, but as objects of mindfulness, the very same experiences 
become the doorway for our awakening. So our practice is all about reorienting us, ourselves to a skillful, to a liberating relationship to this flow of change. It's not a question of pulling away from experience. It's a question of learning to not hold on. You know, and this is what our practice is about. And, and in a way, it's all our practice is about. It's just learning to not hold on. So liberating insight into impermanence can come to us on many different levels and in many different ways. And sometimes um, we may begin or become interested on the conceptual level. You know, in a lot of science, uh, many, many arenas of science point to experiences of change and impermanence that really boggle the mind. And over the many years, you know, I've used different examples of this, but my, my latest favorite is just a little snippet of science information that I read in a magazine. It said, capturing the motion of an electron within an atom sounds like an impossible task. Not least because shuffling between orbits or escaping the nucleus takes just attoseconds or billionth of a billionth of a second. That's what an attosecond is, a billionth of a billionth of a second. To put this in perspective, an attosecond is to a second what the blink of an eye is to 10 billion years. So the speed at which an electron shifts orbits is in attoseconds. And the relation of an attosecond to a second is the time of a blink of an eye to 10 billion years. It said the article ended, unfazed, scientists have lighted on ways to operate on such infinitesimal scales. I mean, it's, it's really mind-boggling that if you think that on this level, these are really the building blocks of our whole material, physical world, and things are moving at changing at that speed, and yet we live as if everything is stable and secure and lasting. So just on, on this very basic level of scientific understanding, you know, we can at least conceptualize, probably very few of us who actually can directly perceive this, but <laughs> if you can, please raise your hand. <laughs> but somehow it has been measured, you know, and so even just intellectually, I find you know, it can really kind of just open the mind to, you know, to realize that there's so much in terms of understanding and permanence that's at the very, very basis 
of our lives, of our planet, of the universe. Other examples of impermanence, which again we might not see directly, but it's coming a little closer. You know, think of times that you went to a really good movie and just caught up in the story, you know, involved in the story, engaged in the story. Lots of feeling and lots of emotions. But when we step back and just really become mindful of what's happening, what's really happening on the screen? Is there anybody there that's getting chased, that's falling in love, that's dying? No, it's just pixels of light change. I don't exactly know how it works, but something like that. You know, pixels, pixels of light on a screen. Everything we thought was happening when we were involved in it, you know, when we were caught up in it, is not really happening at all. It's just a lot of changing, dancing, you know, elements of light. This is not to suggest that we don't engage in the movies, the stories of our lives, in just conventional reality, because we do. And we need to engage on that level. But if we can also, at the same time, see on a deeper level, see that the apparent reality is apparent and it's conventional and we relate to it appropriately, but on another whole level, something else is going on. And on on that other level, we begin to see the rapid change of phenomena in the world, within ourselves, within our own minds and bodies. And when we can tune into that, and this is what our meditation practice is all about, it's dropping levels of perception. As we begin to see more clearly the changing nature of our own internal experience, of external experience, even as we're engaged in the stories of our lives, there's much less tendency to get caught up in reactivity and in suffering. Because we understand things from a whole different perspective. So wisdom also comes from paying attention to impermanence in ways we already know, (coughs) but just often overlook. And these can become a real daily life meditation. (coughs) When we see that change, the truth of change, of impermanence, is happening all the time, all around us, within us, we see it and we can see it so clearly, just all the changes in nature. (coughs) The seasons through the year the daily weather patterns, the huge global climate change that's taking place. (coughs) We can see it in societies, you know, with some (coughs) larger perspective. We can step back and see the rise and fall of whole civilizations. During the summer I was teaching in Europe. I was teaching a course in Denmark. But for about a week before that retreat, 
I went with some friends to one of the Greek islands. And it was really beautiful. And it was the island of Santorini. And Santorini, 1600 BC, there was a huge volcanic eruption which covered the entire island in 200 feet of ash. You know, so it killed everybody on the island. In recent years, they've been doing this excavation, this amazing archaeological excavation of one of the towns on one end of the island that had been buried. So this is from 1600 BC. And it was kind of an outpost of the Minoan civilization, you know, of Crete. And it was just so amazing. There was the, the, the excavation was extraordinary because uh, they had um, whole streets and you know of the town, and they had three-story buildings, and you know they could tell and had the buildings reconstructed of the shops and the homes, and just it was amazing. You could just get a sense of the whole civilization that happened. You know, and now it's an excavation of ruins. More immediately, and one of the things I love about New England, <laughs> you know, many of you probably have gone for some walks in the woods or along the road, and you see these miles of stone walls. What's particularly striking in the woods, you know, just <laughs> throughout the woods, miles and miles of stone walls, and you see uh, old stone foundations of houses that had been there. When people built those walls, this this is not a natural occurrence. (laughs) And you just think of, you know, all of the lives of these people, you know, who lived there and worked the land and built the walls, you know, who were living lives as vivid and compelling as our own. And now what's left? You know, stone walls in the woods or an ancient excavation on an island in Greece. And then, of course, we bring this awareness of impermanence really more immediately to our own lives, to our own experience. What's the changing nature of our relationships? Do you have a wish that somebody you're close to would just stay the perfect way? No, but people are changing. (laughs) To look at the changing nature of our work, you know, our bodies, our minds. We see that everything is disappearing and new things arising, not only every day, not only every hour, but actually moment to moment to moment. And in this space of a retreat, in this such precious space, and I, just just before coming into the hall, you know, the, some of you were outside on the front lawn, and you know the beautiful sunset. And I just walked by, and it was, it was so incredibly peaceful. And I I got such a rush of just happiness of here's this environment, you know, this beautiful, peaceful environment, and everybody was just walking really meditatively, in silence, in awareness. And I thought, what, what an amazingly rare event this is in the world. 
you know, people dedicated to wakefulness, you know, to awareness. So on this retreat and in this space that's so supportive for paying attention, we can see this flow of impermanence in just the smallest ordinary activities. You know, in a breath. A breath is not one thing. When we're really just there feeling the breath, we can feel, there's a flow of sensations of a breath or the movement of a step. You know, just simple. It's the, the most simple thing. We're taking a step, but it's not just one thing. And the leg is not some one unchanging thing. If we're really there and feeling it, it's just a flow of changing sensations. And the quieter we are and the more attentive, we can feel so many of them. You know, we listen to the sound. All the vibrations and the overtones and the nuances. and There's so much going on in the simplest aspects of experience. You know, when we were practicing with Sayadaw Upandita, of course, you know, he was so demanding of, you know, kind of that quality of attentiveness. I just got into the habit, especially in going in for interviews, when he was there, uh, you know, of walking in really mindfully and bowing really mindfully. And just in those small movements, and I'm reminded every time we end a sitting, for example, in the morning and the bell rings, and just in this movement, you know, so many of us will just raise the arms. So how are we doing this? Is it just a kind of a rote thing? But in, in that tiny little experience, we can be experiencing the flow of change, the flow of impermanence. It's just a flow of many changing sensations. And what's so interesting as we drop to that level, whether it's in a small movement like this, whether it's standing up, whether it's taking a step, the concept of arms, of hands disappear when we drop on into the level of just the changing flow of sensations, the whole image, the whole concept of the body vanishes and we're just in the reality of sensations arising and passing. We begin to see for ourselves in this most simple and direct way that what we take conventionally to be solid and fixed and who we are is not at all like that when we're actually paying attention. We see that all phenomena is just arising and passing quickly and it's so insubstantial, so much in constant change, in constant flow. So as a little experiment, if you can remember between now and the end of the talk, so this is a bit of a challenge to you, a little experiment at the end of the talk, when you get up and leave the hall and go for the walking, 
Just as you do that in that simple activity, and it does not have to be creeping along, just notice the flow of changing experience. Really focus on that. So as you're standing, there'll be just, just a flow of different sensations are happening in the body, and then there'll be moments of seeing, and then moments of hearing, and then maybe a thought will come, and then feeling sensations again, and it's just a constant flow of change. The thing is, all of this is so obvious that we have stopped paying attention to it. You know, and so here it's just to re-engage with the obvious so we don't overlook it. The clearer we are perceiving impermanence, again, it's the direct perception of it, and that's why I, I just keep referring to very, to very specific activities of feeling or perceiving the flow of changes, the more we're in that flow of awareness, the less we cling. The less we cling, the less we suffer. So the Buddha expressed this very directly, and I kind of like this expression because it's a shortcut to Nibbana. Okay, so that's a good thing. (laughs) So he said, in seeing impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it is not agitated. When it is not agitated, it personally attains Nibbana. Okay, it's it's just very quick. When we see impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When the mind doesn't cling, it's not agitated. When not agitated, it personally attains Nibbana. Now, as with so many of the teachings, it's easy to hear that and just hear it as the Buddha's description of things. It's not a description, it is an instruction. And so it's inviting us to look at those times when we are seeing the flow of impermanence, and it can be in something as simple as the movement of a step, or the feeling of the breath, or the hearing of a sound, when we're really with the momentary, say, vibratory changes, or flow of changes. Notice that when you are perceiving that flow of changes, in fact, at that time, the mind is not clinging. So it's very interesting to really look at the mind, to check it out. Is is what the Buddha said true? When you're seeing impermanence, check out the quality of your mind. In the moments of seeing impermanence, is the mind clinging or not? And so then you might get a very clear sense of the mind that's not clinging. You know, so it's not an abstraction anymore, we're actually experiencing it. And then you could take it to the next step. You know, when, you're, when you're in that flow of impermanence and recognizing, oh yeah, now the mind's not clinging, notice that when it's not clinging, it's not agitated. 
And so we begin to recognize, oh yeah, this is the non-agitated mind. This is a mind at peace. And maybe just for a few moments, that's fine. But we're getting a direct taste of it. It's no longer theoretical. When we're not clinging, it's not agitated. When it's not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. Now, Buddhadasa, he talks of, he talks of these moments of, of temporary Nibbana. You know, and he referred to a colloquial usage of that term, Nibbana, in ancient India. It, it referred to things cooling down, and they'd often refer, you know, when the, uh, cooking rice, and then as the rice cooled, they would say, oh, it Nibbana'd. You know, so I like it. It's like chill. <laughs> yeah, it's just the mind cooled out, yeah. and it's it's a temporary that's going to you know get stirred up again. But we get a we get a taste, you know, of what's possible, and we can play with that instruction from the other side. So the Buddha said, you know, when we see impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it's doesn't cling, it's not agitated. So then we can see when we're agitated, you know, when we're feeling some agitation, then that's a signal, oh, there must be some clinging in the mind, that that's what's causing the agitation. So it becomes a feedback. Instead of just kind of wallowing in the agitation or struggling with it or judging oneself, whatever one does, Instead of that, when the mind is agitated in some way, that becomes feedback then, oh, there must be some clinging in the mind. What am I clinging to? So it becomes a vehicle for our investigation. Don't underestimate the importance of keying into, of seeing, directly this truth of change, of impermanence. On all of these different levels, Lady Sayadaw, who was one of the great masters, Burmese masters, kind of at the turn of the uh, 19th, 20th century, and he was, he was this amazing scholar, and there are still, and you can find online, many manuals uh, that he wrote about the Buddhist teachings, and they're tremendously interesting. Um, so he wrote, not seeing arising and passing away, not seeing change, is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. It's a very clear, not seeing it as ignorance, seeing all phenomena as impermanent, is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So this is not hard to do, because everything is changing all the time. We simply have to pay attention to it. Careful observation of some other obvious truths of impermanence can sometimes help to 
jolt us out of complacency, you know, and uh, out of our deeply habituated patterns of attachment and clinging. Probably the most obvious and ignored reflection is that the end of birth is death. completely obvious, and yet how often do we deeply reflect on it, that our life is only getting shorter and shorter. We're all in the queue, and we're just, we're just moving up the queue. You know the great Indian classic, the Mahabharata, in that very little huge long uh, epic, but there's a sage, one of the characters in it is a sage, who says that the most remarkable thing in the world is that we see people dying all around us, but we don't think it will happen to us. And just reflect, really reflect on your own sense of how you're living. Because we all know intellectually that we're going to die. And so we will all say, oh, sure, I know that. But until we're confronted with the immediacy of it, have we really let it in? Have we really taken that truth of impermanence in? So the Buddha offered some powerful reflections on this. He said, what is subject to old age grows old. I am not exempt. What is subject to illness becomes ill. I am not exempt. What is subject to death dies. I am not exempt. That little phrase, I am not exempt, has become one of my new favorite little mantras. You know, as I'm going, whether on retreat or in life, and things happen that I don't particularly like, you know, some new pain in the body, or this or that, and I just remind and I'm not exempt. And what's so surprising to me is how deeply we feel that we are exempt. And that somehow, everybody else is not exempt. <laughs> but <laughs> What's so surprising, given that impermanence and change shows itself all around us, all the time, what's so surprising is that we find, we still find change surprising. that somehow we count on things staying a certain way. And if they're going to change, that at least they'll change to our liking. And this is kind of how we go through life. And it's not that helpful. And sometimes people may hear all this and think all these reflections on impermanence and change and death and illness and this and that, 
just morbid and why would anybody want to spend time in these kinds of reflections? But they're really reflections on what is true. And so the whole path of Dharma practice, Dharma in its most fundamental meaning is truth. It's just the truth of how things are. So we want to open up. We really want to open up and see the truth of change, the truth of getting old, the truth of dying. Because the more we see it and the more we let it in, again, the less we cling, the less attached we are. And so then in the experience of change, we are at ease or increasingly at ease. So it might just be interesting for you, you know, as you listen to this and as you perhaps reflect on it from time to time, just notice as you let it in, how does it make you feel? Does, is it fearful? Is it inspiring? You know, do you want to avoid it? Do you feel embracing of it? And given this great truth of change, what does it really say about how we're living, about the choices that we're making, about the things that we rely on? Are we just following along in the conventional reality you know, that society is showing us? Or are we really seeing deeply and finding what truly is of value? So a little experiment uh, that I found really helpful is you know, to imagine yourself on your deathbed. And since it's still in our imagination, uh, I've given myself a bed, <laughs> a deathbed. Okay, we never know how we're going to die, but for the sake of the experiment, let's be comfortable. <laughs> okay, we're on our deathbed. <laughs> and to really imagine, okay, th this is it, you know, this is, you know, we, we may be taking our last breaths. And then just to reflect from that perspective, what would we have wanted to have done in our lives? What, we, what would we have wanted to accomplish? What is really of value? So from the perspective of our dying moments, those are very powerful questions. You know, when we're looking back, what is really of importance? Now the key, of course, is to ask these questions now, when we can actually make wiser choices. Because at that moment, it's too late. You know, we will have already lived our lives. So it, it just can provide an interesting perspective, bringing, bringing the reality of this truth of change, you know, just into a sense of immediacy. The liberating power of this, again, don't underestimate it. The Buddha made a very startling statement about all this. He said, it's better to live a single day to see the momentary arise, arising and passing of phenomena. Better to live a single day seeing that clearly 
than to live a hundred years without seeing it. So when you think of it, of all the many wonderful things we can do in our lives, the Buddha is saying, better to live a single day seeing this truth profoundly, the truth of change, than to live a hundred years doing whatever else we do and not see it. Because it's precisely this truth of, of direct seeing of it that is the doorway to freedom. It's the doorway to liberation. There are so many stories in the Buddhist, in the suttas, in the Buddhist texts, where the Buddha will say one line and many people get enlightened. Okay. <laughs> Listen carefully. <laughs> the, 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 the suttas are filled with these stories. And I, I like it because it, it just points to the fact that yeah, when the mind is ready, when we're really receptive and the mind is open, sometimes it can happen. And if not full enlightenment, maybe some deep insight, you know, where something just strikes us very deeply. So one of the lines that's like this, that's frequently repeated in the suttas, is that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So simple and so profound. Whatever has the nature to arise, which is everything. It's everything in the body, it's everything in the mind, it's everything in the world. Everything has the nature to come into being. And what has the nature to come into being will also pass away. If we could really deeply integrate that understanding in our lives, it would change our relationship to this whole flow of passing phenomena. And so we practice just seeing it. Again, in the simplest things. We don't have to have some extraordinary amount of concentration to be seeing this. In a simple movement, But just the flow of changes is completely obvious. That's what we want to be keying into. It's not so important what it is that's happening. What's more important is seeing that whatever has the nature to arise will pass away. And seeing it. That all, all experience is just part of an endlessly passing show. And again, we know this from looking back at our past experience. We want to be aware of it as it's happening, right in the moment. It's just this flow of empty phenomena rolling on. And we can just sit back in a very relaxed but not casual way. We're relaxed and just open to this current, to this river. It's like water flowing over a waterfall. It's just a continual flow of changing phenomena. Sights and sounds and smells and sensations and thoughts and emotions and moment after moment.
seeing it clearly and repeatedly. And this is our practice. This, this is what we're doing here. It reorients our minds when we're seeing this flow of changes. It reorients us towards care and loving kindness rather than attachment because we're just seeing it as a flow. It reorients us towards letting go rather than clinging and attachment. Because we see that holding on to what's changing is just the cause of suffering and agitation. And it reorients us just seeing over and over again, being in the flow of changes of the simplest things as we go through the day, it reorients us towards the possibility of freedom, of awakening. I'd just like to close with a little teaching from a Tibetan teacher, uh, Zigar Kongchul. He said, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and your own realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your lives into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. And that's that's the beauty of this practice that we're all doing together. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes. And can you recall the end of talk exercise? As you're leaving the hall, just watching the flow of changes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.